Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. I was delighted when the teacher announced that our weekend homework was to write a composition entitled Wash Day. As a 10-year-old, I had great first-hand experience of what that day meant in our house back in the mid-60s. I was initiated into the world of the women as I accompanied my mother on her numerous trips to the tap down the road to bucket home the precious water. I knew that the wire handles of the enamel buckets would score into my palms as the many journeys were made, our shoes squelching wet footprints on the road. But even that knowledge didn't dim my pleasure in being amongst the women who dragged on sweet aftons or players as they talked, saving the butt behind the ear. Long before there was any talk of mindfulness, I intuited the pleasure of being in the moment as the wind whipped the water into unruly drifts and I moved the bucket to catch the wayward spate. My father was the stoker, keeping the fire going as pot after pot was suspended from the irons and heated to sooty warmth. He'd boil the tea towels in these frothing cauldrons, prodding the fabric with a stick as it billowed and surfaced. My parents unhooped the galvanised bat pan from its nail on the wall of the shed while I helped to balance it on two kitchen chairs. While I delighted in the suds, I knew the work to be back-breaking for my mother. She'd creak herself into a sore stretch now and then and rub the stiff muscles for some small relief. But the suds were entrancing, wobbling globes, reflecting surreal swirls of colour as they drifted about the kitchen and lodged for precarious moments on the doors of the press or the ledge of the dresser. I followed them with a child's wonder while the harsh detergent gouged scalding nicks into my mother's fingers. I thought of the washing board ridged and ribbed in her chest as a kind of Joan of Arc armoury I'd seen in my school books, a domestic version of the saint's breastplate. For my mother, it was an instrument of drudgery, one that dug into her and left the raw imprint of welts on her skin. One of our neighbours, John Barrett, called to the door one wash day when my arms were immersed on my side of the pan. Are you helping or messing, young one, he asked. I gave the expected answer, messing. But I was neither helping nor messing, but was entranced as I spread the soft suds along my arms, thinking that it was like a froth of cuckoo spit. The rinsing of the clothes was accomplished by plunging them into rainwater in the barrel at the side of the house. Here too was a world of reflective wonder as I saw sky and cloud drift across the surface of the water. Wringing out the clothes was a rhythmic ritual of twisting and turning. My mother would stand back in exhausted but pleased accomplishment when the line of washing was pegged out. She'd hope for gusting winds to rise and twack the garments to freshness. A shower of merciless rain was a surly rebuke to faithful labour. It meant a defeated trudge to the line, knowing that the clothes would steam to sourness before the fire like the coats of smelly dogs.
but a fresh windy day whirled them like dance partners. On the day I came from school announcing that I was to write a composition on wash day, I recounted in excited tones how I describe the drawing of the water, the sooty pots on the fire, the bubbles' light glossiness. I tell of the scrubbing and the ringing out, how the sky was reflected in the barrel, the pleasure of the windy drying day and the sorrow of unfair squalls. Don't, child, my mother said, invent a washing machine. I looked at her in a ghast incomprehension. What did we know of washing machines? I had only seen one or two and felt no fascination. Big white inert lumps dragged into the middle of the kitchen, hoses attached to the taps, the machine a chill white shuddering. I made some lacklustre attempt and handed up the essay in disappointed confusion. What did I understand then of my mother's dream of deliverance from drudgery? Her embarrassment at all I would reveal of her life in a composition for the school teacher? That year the teacher was a newly married woman, combining the elegance of Jackie Kennedy and Mary Quant in lovely tailored dresses. Her bright auburn hair set in a body wave I was always admiring. Once I carried something for her to her car and watched as she rearranged a bag of golf irons in the boot. Well, teacher, I'm over 50 years late handing up my essay, the one I really wanted to write, the one that made me so proud to be my mother's daughter on wash day and every other day too. I have no idea what my ten-year-old self would make of what I have done with my life. Things have occurred, good and bad, that this shy boy could never have conceived of. Marriage, fatherhood, widowhood. A conventional working life that ended when, age 24, I began to eke out a living with just a tin sliver of my imagination. He might be surprised or bemused by my 15 novels produced since then. But what would truly astound and astonish him is that here I am with enough courage to speak on the radio. That ten-year-old was trapped inside the cage of a terrible stammer. A stammer is a prophecy in reverse, telling you what is going to happen long after it has already happened. For me, as a child, being afflicted with a stammer meant suffering daily public crucifixions. Supermarkets were a rarity. Grocery shops were kingdoms ruled by white-coated monarchs who leaned across counters to demand a password upon entry. The password was the name of whatever I was sent to purchase. Items I could see tantalisingly within reach on the shelves behind them. But their names might have been in Arabic for all the chance I had of pronouncing them. My panic at being sent on an errand 
began before I left the house and would crystallise into palpable terror when I entered the shop, because no matter how often I rehearsed a simple phrase like a pint of milk, please, once I stood at the counter, I became tongue-tied, unable to speak. What I wanted became guesswork for shopkeepers. Most were kind, but others were gruff, making you feel they didn't suffer fools gladly, and back then, possessing a stammer, you could be made to feel like the biggest fool alive. In films, stammerers were presented as figures of fun and mockery, but a stammer was no laughing matter. It respected neither creed nor class. It could afflict anyone, from a boy in Fingless to Britain's wartime reluctant monarch George VI, who strove to project a strong public image while privately fighting to control his stammer. No matter who you were, a stammer could strip away your self-confidence and make you socially isolated. My true poetry was being sent to buy a sachet of shampoo because I also suffered severe difficulties in pronouncing the S sound. Therefore, in 1969, when my mother began taking me to speech therapy sessions in Temple Street Children's Hospital, it seemed impossible that I could ever say the phrase my speech therapist patiently tried to teach me, 66 sneaky silvery snakes. Unbeknownst to me, my mother was seriously ill and died later that year. Some of my last memories of her involve us watching a blacksmith shoeing horses at Kelly's Row, a back lane into the hospital. Her concern for me, regarded as a dunce because of my stammer, was alleviated by my kindly therapist who assured her he's actually a bright penny, but just under a cloud. 1969 when my mother took me to Temple Street, was an important year for speech therapy in Ireland because, for the first time, speech therapists began to be trained here. Until the pioneering group of 15 students started training that year, the few therapists who worked in Ireland were foreign or, if Irish, needed to train abroad. In 1971, there were 20 speech therapists in Ireland. Today, there are 1,800. None of the pioneers working in the Temple Street Speech Therapy Unit will remember a small boy from Fingless being brought there in 1969. But tongue-tied children like myself have never forgotten the patient assistance we received in such institutions. I left Temple Street, finally able to pronounce the S sound, but my stammer didn't disappear overnight. It took years, and occasionally... I still get stuck on a wood. When my mother died, worried for her son, she could never have envisaged how one day I would partly make my living giving public readings. I've lost count of the hundreds of times I've walked onto stages or into radio studios where often an engineer doing a sound check will ask me to say a few random words. My words are never random. Staring at the microphone, I remember my mother bringing me to Temple Street, the patient speech therapists helping me to gain the power of speech, and how some tongue-tied child might be half listening to the radio, wondering if they will ever escape the stammer that seems to weigh them down. Slowly and distinctly, to honour them all, I enunciate into the microphone, 60 
six sneaky silvery snakes. On a recent visit to friends in North Belfast, I spotted a solitary Kurdish barber shop among the many Turkish ones on the Cliftonville Road. And I thought again of Hassan. It was 1985 in a campsite cafe outside Istanbul and Hassan, a boyish young waiter, was anxious to practice his English on us. My husband Anthony and I were on our big adventure, travelling overland to India in our camper van, with our daughters aged five and seven in tow. Hassan was, he told us, a Kurd from Kurdistan. When he heard our planned route, he said we must visit his family in the east. We thought no more about it, until a few hot and eventful weeks later, we were told at the Iranian border that we could only get a transit visa if we hired an armed guard to travel with us, and we found ourselves unexpectedly in Anatolia, the area Hassan had called Kurdistan. The address he had given us brought us to a cafe in a remote village. The man who ran it seemed amazed at the sight of us. A flurry of locals arrived to meet us, but although everyone was friendly and welcoming, a language barrier on both sides hindered communication. We enjoyed the cafe's set menu of boiled eggs, flatbread and fresh figs, but were taken aback by the gauntness of the shaven-headed men we met and by how the silent, head-scarfed women seemed old beyond their time. Next day, all became clear when a friendly English-speaking young man, Ramazan, arrived off the overnight bus from Ankara. He had been summoned by Hassan's family to talk to us. We learnt that in our naivety, we had stumbled into the aftermath of the 1984 Kurdish uprising, a continuation of the tragic centuries-old struggle of the Kurdish people. After the military coup in Turkey in 1980, half a million Kurds had been imprisoned and all aspects of their culture had been banned. It was even illegal to call yourself a Kurd or to use the term Kurdistan. The men we met had been in prison. What we thought were just mounds of stones everywhere were in fact the ruins of houses, destroyed as part of an official policy of raising Kurdish homes to the ground. Hassan had been sent to Istanbul by his family to save money to escape the country before he was conscripted into the military service, as they believed he would not survive the harsh treatment he would receive there as a Kurd. It all seemed like a dream when, months later, we eventually returned home from our travels. But after writing some letters and making some phone calls to the relevant authorities here and in Istanbul, 
Hassan arrived in Ballyshannon to live with us and attend the local school for the next two years. He loved school and was a good student. He was 19 but looked 15 and with his sunny personality he quickly made friends and his good looks and charm brought lots of wide-eyed teenage girls to our door. It was a crash course for us in negotiating the fraught challenges of teenage angst with different cultural expectations of relationships. But our extended family and the local community surrounded him in a supportive network. He fitted into our lives as though there had always been a place there waiting for him. He told me that what he found most strange about our lives was the fact that Anthony also did housework and he marvelled at how we talked to and played with our daughters. There was just one time that the history of this Kurdish boy from Kurdistan spilled over into his new life. At the end of a busy night in the folk club which Anthony ran each week, Hassan said he wanted to sing. With his hand cupped over one ear and his eyes closed, this slight young man stunned the boisterous end-of-night crowd into silence with a spine-tingling rendition of a Kurdish song. He sang unaccompanied in a haunting Shano style, not unlike the long tapering wail of the called prayer in the ruins of his home village. I saw again the scarred heads of the men, the resigned sorrow of the women, the ragged clothes on the smiling children and the skeletal dogs slinking through the heaps of stones that were once homes. Hassan slipped out of our lives as easily as he had slipped in. After a year working in a hotel in Dublin, he moved to New York. There were upbeat postcards from there for a few years and then we lost contact and I have no idea where he is now. There are tens of millions of Kurdish people out there and many share his name. Hassan's dream was to have his own restaurant. Maybe just as I stumbled in that Kurdish barber shop in Belfast, someday in New York I will find it. There's a generation of people in Donegal who over the years might ask a question when they first meet me. It's always the same question. Are you Eileen's daughter? I say, yes, I'm Eileen's daughter. And then there's a moment's silence before they say how they remember that day. That day in 1972 when she died tragically. I am Eileen's daughter. Part of me will always be that 14-year-old girl who lost her mother, even though at this stage I am 22 years older than mum was when she died. The daughter is older than the mother. It has become a part of me as a person, 
part of the history that I pass on, part of the viewpoint that has shaped who I am today. Who knows? Maybe that will always keep me younger in spirit. There are many people who share this life experience of losing their mother at a young age. They have different stories, but there is a strain of emotions and feelings that can be similar. Trying to understand the loss can be like living through a huge jigsaw with an infinite amount of pieces to place together. But hearing other daughters and sons telling their stories can help complete sections of the puzzle. I'm grateful that there were Mother's Days to celebrate with Mum. The cooked breakfasts made as a group event and carried up on a tray to our parents' bedroom. The homemade cards with the message, Best Mother in the World. Presents, like bottles of tweed perfume. Mum's sheer delight with whatever we gave her. And then there was that first Mother's Day after her passing that sits as a blank page in my jammed diary of that time. I'm very grateful for all the Mother's Days when I am the receiver, grateful for the gift of being a mother of three adult sons, that I was given enough time to know Mum in some way as a person, to know what made her laugh, and she did laugh, often, to know the touch of a new outfit that she had sewn for me, to know the music that she loved and to hear her singing along to Engelbert Humperdinck on the radio, to have long newsy letters from her, to have watched her and Dad dance together, to know how much she loved being back living in Donegal again, to have witnessed her running her own business of a clothes shop in Letterkenny, to know the number of scenic places Mum loved to visit, and how she would inhale gloriously and say to us, Alok, take a deep breath. And now, for me to be able to go to Loch Salt, watch the spread of the land before me, the rise and fall of the hills, the whip of the ocean waves, with Tory Island in the distance, and I stand there as light starts to fall and whisper, Hey Mum, I know you're there. There are times when a new piece of knowledge about mum comes to us, usually when a stranger tells a story. Recently, I found a box of old cine films and then took them to be transferred. One of the films was of mum and dad's wedding in 1957. What it was to watch mum and dad, our grandparents, aunts and uncles in their younger age. What it was to see mum's giddy excitement as they greeted friends on the church steps after their marriage. And then to see the vivid cobalt blue of her going away suit, her sheer aliveness. When I first held our newborn sons, I remembered how she was when my brother was a baby. And I heard her saying, you can never spoil a child with too much love. Now, when our grandson comes for an overnight stay and calls me by that wonderful name, Granny, or when our new baby grandson gives me the wonder of a trusting smile, 
I know it is a gift. And I think, ah, you would have loved this, Mum. I wonder, should I go or should I stay? The band had only one more song to play. And then I saw you at the corner of my eye. A little girl alone and so shy. I spotted a tatty leather couch just inside the ditch on the top field of the farm. It faced Knockenafrin Ridge in the Cumra Mountains. I was putting out fodder for sheep and a few of the O's were scratching themselves on the burst leatherette. While it looked like a surreal art installation, I knew this sofa was unloved, fly-tipped by some litter lout. I thought about our late mother, who could never discard a stick of furniture. I thought in particular of her obsession with collecting couches. She began her collection when Pat Connors sold us a brown and orange plaid couch from the back of his high-ace van. Up until then, our living room seating consisted of two soft green vinyl chairs, real 60s chic. Unfortunately, by then, it was the early 80s and the 60s chic was hopelessly outdated. Plus, most of the green vinyl was now covered by grey duct tape. Despite this, we all bagged the two chairs for watching telly but only if our parents hadn't spoken for them already. So when Pat Connor's couch arrived, our TV viewing was revolutionised. The new couch took its place in our small sitting room, and somehow the five of us managed to squeeze onto it. Our father's greatest wish for us to be seen and not heard was finally realised. That was until the day my older brother decided to leave the battery of his motorbike rest on the couch, as he did some running repairs to the bike in the hall. The battery spilled. The acid ate into the material, causing the inner springs to escape their moorings. We carried on for a while with a blanket covering the holes, until we realised that the blanket and the seats of our jeans were beginning to erode too. By this time, couches were becoming more plentiful, and the good people of Clonmel were beginning to upgrade their old furniture for something better. Our mother seemed to have a sense for where and when a couch became available. She heard of one going in Ann Street, a row of Georgian houses around the corner from our street. Mrs Cousins was a good friend of my mother and was replacing her old sofa with a new leather one. My brothers and myself were dispatched to carry it back. We stared enviously at her new couch, still covered in the plastic. But we were happy to take her old one and couldn't wait to dump Pat Connors' relic. We attempted to remove it to make space but our mother could not bring herself to throw it out. So the old couch was moved to another wall and Mrs Cousin's sofa occupied the best TV viewing spot. This cycle continued for a number of years. Our mother would hear of a couch going somewhere in town and the moving brothers would be sent for and it would all end up in our small sitting room. We did eventually convince her to get rid of the older ones which she reluctantly agreed to store in the backyard. Should the dog will sleep in it, she'd say. As more people of the town upgraded to three-piece suites so did we, though never anything new. Some years later, after we'd all moved away, I would get the call. There's a couch and two chairs going below on Queen Street, my mother would say. Will you bring them up? I had a van, and I was now the head delivery man. She sent me and my work colleague, Mossy, to collect the new set. 
She promised to get rid of the old ones in exchange, but when we arrived with the new delivery, she changed her mind. The sitting room had its now standard two couches plus an armchair. I tried to convince her to let us take the others away to the dump, but she held firm. I pleaded with her, telling her that there was no room and something had to go. Not to be bested, she got the bright idea for us to cart the new one upstairs to the spare bedroom until she figured out what to do with the others. Eventually, after lifting the skin off our knuckles and Mossy cursing his way up the narrow stairs, we arrived at the door of my old bedroom. However, inside, we were met by two more couches and a single bed. In pure frustration, we just stacked the latest discard on top of the existing collection and walked away. Years later, after our mother passed away, we eventually got rid of all the couches, leaving just one in the sitting room. And now as I look at this lonesome settee, dumped in the most beautiful spot overlooking the Cumra Mountains, I decided to load it into the back of my van. Part of me said I should go to the recycling centre, but I found myself heading for home, wondering how would I explain to my wife why I needed to bring home a couch for the dogs, and if she could tolerate her very own couch collector. A card for Mother's Day. I have me places to look for her card. The pound shop on the corner of Moor Street. Or the Euro giant in Kabarak. And when all else fails, back home to the shops in Finglas. She's not mum, ma'am, or even the mammy. Say it loud. Say it proud. She's me ma. Normally before the big day, I have to hunt down a card that says... Happy Mother's Day, ma. But this year, I can't go near the shops for the tears. And I'm fairly sure, on puss doesn't deliver to heaven. So, I'll take the dolly mount with himself and our kids. We'll walk the strand I used to walk with me ma. And watch seagulls teach speckled fledglings how to glide spring winds over the aching waves. On this morning, Sunday miscellany, Margaret Galvin gave us the day I invented the washing machine. The cage of words was by Dermot Bulger. Then we heard about a Kurdish boy from Kurdistan with Olive Travers. Denise Blake told us about being Eileen's daughter. The couch collector was from Joe Whelan. And we also heard a card from Mother's Day there by Rachel Hegarty. Music this morning included the Irish washerwoman played on fiddles by Conor Caldwell and Danny Diamond. Talking Loud and Clear was, of course, by orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. We also had Berry Tan by Charanawa. And The Last Waltz was with Engelbert Humperdinck, while the last track you heard was Sit Down by James. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Michelle Gibson and the producer is Sarah Binchy. Also, for more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes, you can go to rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. 
For more from us, you can follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.